Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash missionlog. This episode is also sponsored by the official Star Trek Discovery Starships Collection. All new starships in a larger size format and officially authorized by CBS Studios. Subscribe today and receive the USS Buran for only $9.95 with free shipping. For details, visit www.herocollector.com slash missionlog and sign up with the promo code MISSION. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 365, Trials and Tribulations. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at every episode of Star Trek in order and by season, diving deep to find the morals, meanings, messages, and nostalgia contained within. This week, Trials and Tribulations, one of the most beloved episodes of Star Trek, inspired by one of the most beloved episodes of Star Trek. Now, John and I can wax nostalgic all day long in our preamble, but in order to keep our temporal investigators happy by staying on time, sorry, I forgot that they hate temporal humor, here's a quick recap of how you can stay in touch with us. Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there, and if you're inclined to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful, and we'll share those in a future supplemental. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Now we'll get to the episode in just a minute, but first we would love to tell you about the official Star Trek Discovery Starships collection from our friends at Eagle Moss Hero Collector. Now, of course, they are officially authorized by CBS Studios. And this is a special collection. These are larger Starship concepts and designs from both seasons of CBS's uh, Star Trek Discovery and include ships from the upcoming season three as well. They've all gone through extensive reference study And they've been reproduced under the supervision of, well, you know him and you love him, Star Trek expert Ben Robinson for accuracy and detail. Now, the first thing that you may notice upon receiving your first ship, and your first ship will be the USS Buran, NCC-1422. 
This is the larger size ship. It's over nine inches from the front of the saucer to the rear of the quad-style nacelles, which make the silhouette very unique. That's what I love about the USS Baran. Oh, yeah. It's sort of like a stargazer, but different. But beefier. Yeah. Beefier. beefier stargazer. Meaner. Yeah. Star beefier. <laughs> <laughs> all, the ships, all the ships in this collection are larger in scale, this larger scale, made of the same type of die-cast metal and ABS materials that you find in the Eagle Moss products in their Star Trek ships collection. They're hand-painted just like those products with references to the actual CG models used in production. And just like the other products in their Starship collection, they also come with their individual display bases, plus that signature collector's magazine featuring behind-the-scenes info, the original design sketches, and a breakdown of all the technology on board and a lot more. So get started today with the Cardenas-class USS Buran. Again, that's NCC-1422. That was the ship that was destroyed by Captain Lorca in the opening episodes of Star Trek Discovery. That is available to subscribers through this special mission log offer. And it's only $9.95 with free shipping when you go to herocollector.com slash mission log you sign up for the Discovery Collection and you put in the code MISSION at checkout. That will reflect this special exclusive offer for the Buran. Additional models, including, well, of course, the iconic USS Discovery, the USS Corella, the reimagined Klingon Bird of Prey, so many more cool ships. Those will ship to you monthly at an exclusive 20% discount off the standard retail price and also with free shipping. But wait, there's oh, more. There's more. <laughs> there's more. Now, subscribers are also entitled to free gifts worth over $100. That is fantastic. That is. What is not so fantastic, but you may choose to do so, is you can cancel your subscriptions at any time. But who would? But who would? Especially when you take a look at those free gifts worth over $100. So full details of all of this may be found at www.herocollector.com slash mission log. And fans who'd like to purchase their favorite ships individually, aside from being in the subscription, so you could have your choice of either individual purchases or subscription purchases, you can do so either online at shop.eaglemoss.com or at your local comic book shop for the regular price of $54.95 each. And now, looking at their watches, if watches are a thing for temporal agents, because they're not, but they kind of are, here is John Champion hopefully staying in time with this week's trivia. I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> There's just, <laughs> there is so much trivia. There, there is so much behind the scenes detail on this episode. I mean, thank goodness, you know, they, they knew what they were producing was special. So they went the extra mile to make sure that it was documented. Um, I'll give you the highlights in my trivia and a few standouts for me personally. I encourage everyone hearing this to dig through Terry J. Erdman's book, uh, The Deep Space Nine Companion, or uh, go back to the DS9 DVDs or whatever you got. There's also a book, The Magic of Tribbles, which is by Terry, along with uh, Paula Block and Gary Hutzel. So th there's so much out there. Go take a look. Now, with that said, uh, the story here is by Ira Stephen Bear, Hans Beimler, and Robert Hewitt Wolf. So all three, realizing that this was Star Trek's 30th anniversary year in 1996, knew that they were going to do something to mark the occasion. It was debated how exactly, and one idea floated around was to revisit Sigma Iosha 2 from a piece of the action to see how they were doing. 
Of course, other iconic episodes like City on the Edge of Forever were considered, but they all agreed that they needed to land on something that was fun and light and would lend itself to the visual elements that they needed to tell the story. Once Tribbles were decided upon, the teleplay was assigned to Ronald D. Moore and Rene Echeverria, and they came up with a lot of the little details, like famously Worf being uneasy and then brushing off questions about why Klingons look so different. Uh, this one was directed by Jonathan West, and of course he has a strong technical background, so he was handpicked to do this one rather than just sort of the lottery style of randomly assigning directors to episodes. Now, of course, you have to give big shout-outs to so many more people on the crew. Uh, people like Doug Drexler, Mike and Denise Akuda, who all went to great lengths to manufacture set details that couldn't be sourced anymore from their original suppliers. They were doing the work the old-fashioned way by freeze-framing TOS and taking approximate measurements based on the cast. Uh, David Gerald, who originally wrote The Trouble with Tribbles, was on hand, and he even has a cameo in a couple of shots. So this episode aired November 4th, 1996. Uh, it was actually filmed the week before the assignment. But this is going to be a tough one to put into post-production, so they allowed themselves a little extra time. Uh, the Trouble with the Tribbles originally aired on December 29th, 1967. And just keep in mind that a few doors down on the Paramount lot, Voyager had just aired in September an episode called Flashback, which would... Uh, well, flash back to an earlier time in Starfleet history as well. Also, later in 1996, on November 11th, Star Trek First Contact would premiere. So you could say that the 30th anniversary of Trek was in full swing. Now, it's not hard to understand that this was not only the highest budgeted single hour of Star Trek on TV up to that point, but that they also went over budget. Um, the time and labor was intense. People were happy to do it, though. This was a happy set. This was a labor of love. And the cast loved it, too. Uh, that scene of Cisco and Dax first walking into an Enterprise corridor was a surprise in order to get genuine reaction out of the actors. And it worked. Um, now, anytime you look up information about this episode, you will see comparisons to Forrest Gump, which had come out in 1994 and featured heavy use of compositing using modern actors like Tom Hanks into historic footage. A test of that same technique was done for Star Trek to convince the producers that sample sold it and they went ahead. Now, they did digitize footage from the original film elements since it would have been too much wear and tear and inconsistent to try to pull those shots from broadcast video. In addition to all the digital trickery, though, you have a huge effort of practical sets and practical models like those beautiful new Enterprise and K-7 space station pieces. Uh, those were done by Greg Jean uh, with research and help from many, many others, of course. That Enterprise, by the way, was built at a uh, one to two scale Compared to the original Enterprise that is still at the Smithsonian, that model is 11 feet long. The one built for this show is five and a half feet long, but in exact matching detail. Now, John, is it fair to say that the research and the recreation kind of kick-started the, 
just the notion of being able to do Star Trek, the original series, in a remastered format, is that where this uh, kernel, this impetus happened? Yeah, that's not out of the question. I mean, I, I think realizing that they could make that TOS style look fresh and new and find an audience, that had to play on the idea. I mean, back at the same time, you had Sci-Fi Channel running like an anniversary series with these new wraparound introductions done by uh, Shatner. So uh, the interest was there. Give it a few more years and with a little more advance in effects, absolutely, you could make this look incredible and fresh to a new audience. Now, all that work earned the team three Emmy nominations, uh, visual effects, hairstyling, and art direction, as well as a Hugo nomination. Now, sadly, and maybe shockingly, it did not win. All right, I, I could go on and on. Uh, call me later. I, I will go on and on, but <laughs> we have some guest stars to talk about. I guess we have to start with the cast of the original series. Many of them are there in archival footage, although the use of their likenesses had to be negotiated. So yes, they all got paid. We have a fun waitress character on K7, played by Leslie Ackerman. She did most of her work in front of the camera in the 70s and 80s, and this is her only Trek appearance. Uh, briefly, Chief O'Brien and Dr. Bashir are distracted by an engineer on the Enterprise who goes unnamed. He's played by Charles Chun. This appearance was pretty early in his career, but fast forward a few years and he has a recurring role on Scrubs as Dr. Wen. He also lends his voice to a couple of Star Trek video games. Oh, and then O'Brien and Bashir get really distracted by a lieutenant who has just joined the Enterprise crew. She is played by Deirdre Emershine. Now, her very first on-screen credit is also Star Trek. Uh, Next Generation, to be exact, where she was Joval on the planet Risa in Captain's Holiday. Few more TV guest roles along the way, including this one. And by 1999, she makes the transition to behind the camera as a producer. Finally, the great Charlie Brill reprises his role from 1967 as Arne Darvin. And we talked about Charlie back in Mission Log number 44, and of course in his long career as an actor and comedian. I have to point out every single time that he had a recurring role on NBC's Super Train in 1979. I thought it would be fun, though, to share this story that I got in an email from a Mission Log listener, Ken Campbell, a long, long time ago. So Ken and everyone who emails, I never throw out anything. Here's what Ken said. Hello, guys. Love the show, although I am very late to the party. I went back and I've been listening to the episodes from the very beginning. I was listening to episode 70, Let That Be Our Last Battlefield, and during John's trivia, I learned that Frank Gorshin was on the Ed Sullivan show the night that the Beatles first perform in the U.S. That got me thinking, who else was on that night? I looked up the list of performers that played that night and found another Star Trek connection. Charlie Brill, who played Arn Darvin on The Trouble with Tribbles, and later reprised his role, initially disguised as Barry Waddle, on DS9's Trials and Tribulations, was also on Ed Sullivan that night. Brill and his wife, Mitzi McCall, were a comedy duo back then and performed between the two sets the Beatles played. Brill has a funny story about John Lennon borrowing some change to buy a soda. And yes, I, I looked that up. He included a link that happened. 
Uh, Charlie Brill loaned John Lennon 10 cents to go buy a soda before they went on stage. Later, Charlie and his wife flew to Miami, not realizing that the Beatles were also on their way to Florida. Funny enough, John Lennon pulled up in a car next to him and said, hey, what are you doing here? Charlie said, we're trying to get away from you. (laughs) So back to Ken's email. He says, John, you'll have to file this one away for when you guys get to Deep Space Nine and 2025 or so. Hey, we we beat it by five years uh, because you already did the trouble with Tribbles, but I wanted to share. Keep up the great work, guys. Ken, thank you so much. Hope you're still listening. And uh, yeah, those old emails never go to waste. I wonder how long James T. Kirk sat in an office with the 23rd Century Temporal Investigators after he brought back the whales. Gracie, you've got some splainin' to do. Prologue In Ops, Major Kira welcomes Agents Luxley and Dolmer from Temporal Investigations, who are intent on immediately seeing Captain Sisko. Oh, and a word of warning. Being from temporal investigations, they hate temporal humor. Starting at the beginning, if there is such a thing, Luxley and Dolmer want the truth as to why Captain Sisko took the Defiant into the past. Sisko, much to the investigator's chagrin, quipped, explaining his reasons might, um, take some time. Two weeks ago, the Defiant traveled to Cardassia Prime to recover one of the sacred Bajoran orbs that has been in Cardassian hands since the Bajoran occupation. Unbeknownst to Captain Sisko, this orb in particular is the Orb of Time. With the orb secured, the Defiant was ready to depart, but took on one passenger, Barry Waddle, an elderly human merchant who has been entrapped on Cardassia since the recent Klingon aggressions. Nearly halfway home, Chief O'Brien detects a massive chronoton radiation surge. As the bridge is bathed in glowing light, the Defiant suddenly drops out of warp and someone mysteriously beams off the ship. With the cloaking device reactivated, Dax informs the captain that they are over 200 light years from their previous position. The chief finally gets the view screen back online and everyone stares at it in awe as the image in front of them is that of the USS Enterprise, NCC-1701. Act 1. The two temporal agents ask Sisko to be very specific about his details, especially which Enterprise, as there have been five. No, six. Sisko identifies this ship as the original Constitution class. Both agents come to the terrible realization that this Enterprise was his ship, James T. Kirk's ship. Kirk, the most notorious temporal menace on record with 17 separate violations. Sisko continues stating that the Enterprise was orbiting Deep Space Station K-7, and thanks to Odo's and Worf's combined investigative prowess, they discover that Barry Waddle activated the Orb of Time and beamed off the Defiant. Odo continues that Barry is in fact Arn Darvin, a surgically altered Klingon spy whose younger self is currently on K-7, posing as a Federation official, with a mission to destabilize the Federation's colonization of a nearby system by poisoning grain shipments on the station. However, in 18 hours, James T. Kirk will expose Darvin, thwart his plans, leaving Darvin's career and Klingon honor in ruin. Surmising that the elder Darvin may be planning to assassinate Kirk before the younger Darvin is exposed, Captain Sisko and his crew prepare themselves to blend in seamlessly with this time period, when operations officers wore red, command officers wore gold, and women wore less. 
Splitting up into teams, Cisco, Dax, Bashir, and O'Brien beam over to the Enterprise as Odo and Worf beam onto K7. As Cisco and Dax exit their beaming point inside a turbo lift, they are overcome with the awe and wonder of walking through one of the most famous ships in Starfleet history. Act 2. Inside their turbo lift beaming point, Chief O'Brien and Dr. Bashir struggle with the nuances of non-verbal command-based 20th-3rd century technology and specifically how to get their turbo lift moving. A young woman wearing Science Division blue enters, grabs one of the handles, and orders the turbo lift to Deck 15. After following her example, Julian whispers to the chief, I won't tell anyone if you won't. Meanwhile, Dax and Sisko find a more secluded work area to scan for Darwin as Dax caresses her tricorder and waxes nostalgic about the design aesthetic of her past. On K7, Odo enters the station bar and finds a secluded spot to sit and begin scanning for Darwin. Shortly after, Ensign Chekhov and Lieutenant Uhura also enter in and walk up to the bar where the bartender is fending off a very persistent trader named Cyrano Jones. When Odo orders a Raktagino from his waitress, she's unfamiliar with a Klingon coffee and even further surprises him, saying he's the second person today who's ordered that, the first being an older human man. Settling for Tarkalian tea, Odo sits and observes as he sees Cyrano Jones hand something small, furry, and purring to Lieutenant Uhura. Back on board the Enterprise, having found their own innocuous junction station to scan for Darwin, O'Brien and Bashir are discovered by a crewman who is supposed to be repairing that specific area as ordered by Scotty on the duty roster. Fumbling with this strapped-together patchwork of 23rd century panel circuitry, Bashir covers for O'Brien by telling this highly inquisitive crewman that O'Brien is suffering from work-related stress as they both escape this awkward encounter with a convenient trip to sickbay. On K-7, just as soon as Worf enters the bar and approaches Odo for an update to his investigation, he is greeted by a cooing that turns into a shrieking cry, a sound that has plagued his people for generations, the terrified sound of a tribble. Act 3. Not wanting to draw attention to themselves, Worf sits with Odo and in great detail tells him about how the Tribbles were at one time mortal enemies of the Klingon Empire who sent hundreds of their greatest warriors to hunt down the Tribble species to extinction and end their ecological terror across the known galaxy. Suddenly, red alert klaxons blare through both the K-7 station bar and in the corridors of the Enterprise, where Dax and Sisko make their way into a turbo lift to contact Kira for a situation report. That is, when Sisko remembers to flip open his 23rd century communicator to make his call. It turns out that the Klingon D-7 battlecruiser IKS Groth, commanded by Captain Koloth, is there for a brief shore-leave respite. Dax begs Sisko to beam over to K-7 so that she can see Curzon's old friend in his prime, but he stands firm, focusing on the mission and for Dax not to engage in too much fun. Having been ordered by Kira to beam to K-7 to assist Odo and Worf, O'Brien and Bashir run into the same woman who shared their turbo lift earlier. She introduces herself as Lieutenant Watley, a fresh transfer from the USS Lexington, who makes certain that Dr. Bashir knows that she is coming in tomorrow at 1500 for her physical. Usually flattered by such an obvious pass, Bashir is somewhat alarmed when he realizes that this woman could be his great-grandmother, and that he could be his own great-grandfather, causing a predestination paradox that could prevent Bashir from being born. Naturally, Miles is desperately wanting for a beam-out. Meanwhile, as Sisko and Dax pretend to repair another panel, Dax can't help but be distracted by 
two of the most famous figures in the history of Starfleet, who has stopped to take an intercom call, Captain James T. Kirk and Mr. Spock. As Kirk is embroiled with a Mr. Barris on K-7 about an issue with a 12-man swarm of Klingons, Sisko ushers Dax along as she cannot help but fall prey to her enthusiasm about this time and these people. And Sisko admits he would love to talk to Kirk, shake his hand, ask him about fighting the Gorn on Cestus III, but there still is a mission to complete. Darwin is still at large. On K-7, O'Brien and Bashir reunite with Worf and Odo, who are quietly enjoying drinks at their table waiting for Darwin to return. Shortly after Bashir gives Worf and Odo an earful about their investigative methods, three officers from the Enterprise also enter the bar, Scotty, Chekhov, and one more who the chief believes is Captain Kirk and wants to buy him a drink. The waitress appears and immediately tells them to not even dare order Ractagino, as all of the other Klingons in the room have. Wait, other Klingons? What other Klingons? As Odo, the chief, and Bashir look around the room, they look right at Worf who sidesteps the issue entirely. Luckily for Worf, one Klingon problem begats another. The defiant crew overhears as Mr. Scott is pushed to the breaking point by a loud-mouthed drunken Klingon named Korax. He first insults Captain Kirk and then calls the Enterprise a garbage scow. Being a matter of pride, Scotty Haymaker punches Korax across the table and the entire bar erupts into a battle royale as O'Brien, Bashir, Worf, and Odo are all swept up in the melee. Odo spots Darwin outside the entrance as Cyrano Jones tries to leave with a free drink in his hand while O'Brien and Bashir are taken into custody by Enterprise security. Act 4. Back in the present, the two temporal investigators specifically point out that Sisko's officers have directly violated regulations by participating in historical events. But Sisko tries to smooth over by stating that they would have known if the timeline had changed, much to the temporal investigator's chagrin. Sisko continues with his report and tells him that O'Brien and Bashir were actually taken in for questioning by Captain Kirk himself. When Kirk asked O'Brien who threw the first punch and started the bar fight, O'Brien lied to Kirk, saying, I don't know, sir. Dismissed from their dressing down, Bashir and O'Brien make haste down a corridor when Bashir not only steps on a tribble, but the chief finds the corridor littered with them. Worf and Odo beam onto the Defiant with Darwin in custody. Gloating as villains are wont to do, Darwin hailing himself now as one of the greatest heroes of the Klingon Empire, or will be, confesses that his master plan has a specific poetic justice to it, earning him a statue in the Hall of Heroes, with Kirk's head in one hand and a tribble in the other. Odo contacts Sisko and tells him that Darwin has planted a bomb in one of the tribbles, and that Sisko and his team must either use the Enterprise's internal sensors or scan them manually. Dax and Sisko make their way to the bridge where they observe Kirk while using the sensors to sweep the Enterprise. Dax freezes in terror when Kirk sits on a tribble, but she just shrugs her shoulders as he turns to her in bewilderment of what has befallen his bridge. Accessing the sensors, Sisko sweeps the Enterprise for any signs of this tribble bomb as Dr. McCoy strides onto the bridge. Dax remembers him from when her host, Emily, met him as a student at Ole Miss while she was judging a gymnastics tournament. McCoy clearly made an impression as Dax's expressions remember how skillful his hands were, skillful as a surgeon. Having cleared the Enterprise for any triple bomb threats, Sisko and Dax turn their attention to the now obvious place where the bomb is, on board K-7. Act 5. Wading through an exponentially growing 
1,771,561 tribbles. That's assuming that starting with one tribble with an average litter of 10 every 12 hours over three days, it's a question of multiplication and not manpower. The tribbles are breeding faster than can be scanned for the bomb. However, Dax has a brilliant idea. She believes that shadowing Kirk will eventually lead them to wherever Darwin planted the bomb. As they observe a very irate Kirk in the Enterprise mess hall, holding a tray of tribbles instead of his chicken sandwich and coffee, Scotty bursts in with a mess of tribbles in his clutches as Kirk, Spock, and McCoy surmise that the tribbles are infesting the ship through the air ducts, like the one in the storage compartments. Storage compartments on K7. Sisko and Dax beam back to K7 and frantically scan the tribbles trapped in the storage compartments and gorged on grain. Sisko finds the booby-trapped tribble as Kirk unjams the storage compartment doors. Dax beams it into space, saving Kirk and thwarting Darwin's mission once again. With the orb of time restored on the Defiant, Major Kira discovers how to return all of them to their own time, but not before Captain Sisko risks one final indulgence, meeting Captain Kirk in person admitting as such to the chagrin of the temporal investigators. As the agents leave the station, Captain Sisko and his crew just have a few small problems left from their adventure. Well, perhaps more than a few. More like 1,771,561 tribbles. That's assuming starting with one tribble with an average litter of 10 every 12 hours over... Well, you get the drift. The end. All right, look, I'm calling it. I'm calling it right now. Uh, Triple Bomb, uh, name of my new band. Uh, Dayton, you can have it if you want, but uh, I'm just saying Triple Bomb needs to happen, okay? That sounds like an amazing drink name, too. Ooh, it does, yeah. I, I, I'll, either ha- I'll way. have a Triple Bomb. <laughs> either way, we can make it happen. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. Hey, uh, th- there's so much to point out in this episode. Let's get right to it. I mean, uh, the whole temporal investigations thing right off the bat is really funny they're playing at like you know 1950s gum shoes which tells you exactly what kind of episode this is you know it, it just sort of indicates to the audience okay buckle up we're gonna have some fun here um plus I, I kept thinking to myself what good could they actually be i mean if the timeline changed how would they know well, they, they, mm-hmm. they wouldn't because even one of them says, for all you know, we could be living in an alternate timeline right now. And, and yes, that, exactly. It, actually, Cisco says that. And that. That is exactly the point. In fact, literally all of them are the fact that they are all alive and not from an Earth that was destroyed by a whale probe is because they're in an alternate timeline that Kirk created. So... There you go. It's tricky stuff. It is. This timeline stuff is tricky stuff. If I may, if I may borrow a, a colloquialism from another sci-fi, uh, legendary sci-fi sure. show, it's very wibbly-wobbly, timey oh, stuff. Oh, yes. That's how the doctor would explain it. The other doctor. Mm-hmm. Yes. The other doctor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and also, you know, I, these are temporal investigators, and how dare they get familiar in Captain Sisko's quarters? And Dolmer is fondling Captain Sisko's baseball. Right. Yeah. I mean, who does that? Let's see. Right? Yeah, for a couple of straight-laced guys, that's very personal. Ooh, I, I have another product idea. Uh, how about a Klingon cologne with the smell of peat and lilac? Just a hint. Just a hint. Of lilac. I think it'd be yeah. nice. I think it'd be really good. I call it Kapla, <laughs> the smell of victory. Yes. I like <laughs> that uh, in this episode, you have a very specific star date 
tied to real world dates because as a production star trek really plays fast and loose with all of that it took mike and denise coming along and writing the chronology to really sort of Uh, codify where things are and when they take place. But now they say that from this point in Deep Space Nine, the events of Trouble with Tribbles were 105 years, one month, 12 days ago, a Friday. I love that. Mm. Because from the beginning they said, okay, well, let's just make Stardates mean nothing because then it could take place whenever we wanted to. And then in TOS you have mismatched dates when they say that something was 600 years ago or 800 years ago or 400 years ago. It never quite lines up with where we think they are in that future. Yeah. And it shows like how on the ball these temporal investigators are. They're just not, they just don't show up to like, you know, take your statement. Yeah. You know, they know they did the calculation in there. Oh, they know. They know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, and I just thought, you know, Hey, uh, taking a Klingon, and surgically mm-hmm. altering one to look like a human, that is such a crazy idea. Maybe they'll do it again. We could talk about that, but then we'd be jumping our own no. timeline. Oh, no, no, no. Don't. And then temporal investigations will come do to us. Do not anger them, whatever you do, please. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, we are. Um, there. this episode is obviously rife with, with throwbacks to TOS. Yeah. And I do love the fact that when, you know, when, um, when Barry Waddle uh, or Charlie Brill comes on, and he says that, you know, I'm a merchant that deals with, you know, gemstones, kivas, and trillium. That was Spock's merchant's deal in Errand of Mercy. Right. I'm not exactly sure what kivas or trillium is, but obviously it's important to TOS. <laughs> it is. Um, I also loved the fact that he says Klingon with a hard G. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. right? What we don't hear in this episode is uh, Shatner saying Klingon. <laughs> yeah, they, they drop yeah. that, but <laughs> we don't hear. But I lo- yeah. yeah, but I love how he like like uh, later on, like Korax in in the bar, you know, it's like he says Klingonese yeah. instead of Klingonese. Yes, yeah. So I like how they how at least Charlie Brill, and this, this may have been his own note for himself to say it as it once was said back in TOS. Um, again, a lot of TOS references. I love the the subtle musical cue yes. when we see the Enterprise materialize the first time. Yes. I think that is fantastic. But here's where I think some things, I wouldn't say they fall flat for me, mm-hmm. but they, they kind of, they tickle my mind in an interesting mm. way. When you see Cisco, O'Brien, Bashir, and Dax, mm-hmm. when they're all in the hallway with their uniforms on, it almost feels like the most sincere, reverent cosplay ever mm. you yeah know? yeah i don't feel like it, it almost take like this is where the episode kind of takes a tonal shift where okay i can't take this episode that seriously because we know that they are trying to establish a certain tone now it's time to have fun right like to have real fun with and all. and they are us I mean, just yeah. never forget, they are us. They they are every Star Trek fan who has ever put on a uniform and wanted it to be real. You know, well, you know, there was one point in time where Star Trek fan films were of a certain quality. But then after seeing, you know, uh, James Cawley's work mm-hmm. and, and uh, Vic's work with Star Trek continues, mm-hmm. it takes on a completely different level of professionalism. And that's what I was getting from that moment. One thing I would have liked to have seen, though, would have I would have liked to have seen the chief in a in a jumpsuit, like a, a utility yes. uniform. Yes, we kept because seeing those then, in, in in the original series. Right? That would have been great. Yeah, exactly, and that would have kind of played to. Then you would have had Dax in red, Bashir in blue, Cisco in gold, and then you would have a workman's uniform, a jumpsuit. 
That would have been cool. Yeah. I, I thought that would have been kind of yeah. neat. And uh, of course, you had to throw in the, the obligatory McCoy reference. And I'm a, when Bashir says, I'm a doctor, not a historian. Yes, it was so good. <laughs> it was so perfect. Um, hey, and for once, when they get on the Enterprise, it feels crowded. There are very few uh, scenes in Star Trek anywhere, other than when we get to DS9 and we're on the promenade or in Quark's bar, that actually feel like these places are inhabited. Every now and then in TOS, you'd pack a corridor with some people, but for the most part, you're just focusing on your main cast. Um, It was nice to have that, and it was nice to hear Dax call it out and say, wow, they really packed him in on these old ships. That that was pretty cool. Speaking of Dax, I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't think enough credit can be given to Terry Farrell with how how she, I think, overall, any of the cast members really does represent us, the fans, because she's loving every single second of her experience in this. Yeah. As Dax and as Terry. Oh yeah. Yeah. You can tell I mean, like like I mentioned that moment of um, them walking into the corridor, that it was the first time they had seen that set. And uh, Mm. just every, every interaction, her excitement is absolutely palpable. Yeah. No one struts down a hallway. The way Kirk and Spock struck down a hallway, you know. What a I great just—it it didn't even have to be an iconic scene. They just—they just own it, you know. They—they they right. just absolutely own it. So, um, and, and the perfect segue into that moment where you've got behind them Dax and Cisco and her noticing of Spock. Not only is it a great Dax moment anyway, because it, you know. Dax, Dax is a free spirit and she's gotten around and good for her. But it speaks to every female fan who, instead of the star of the show, they fell for the mysterious alien. And I mm-hmm. thought that was the, the perfect way to honor that in, a, in an episode like this. Klingons, of course, we, we all know they look different. Uh, but I did question in the logic of the episode, why wouldn't anyone from ds9 know that like i'm sure that they still had cameras at the time in fact i know that they did because you can go on the enterprise 1701 from the original series and and you can call up something on the library computer you want to see what a klingon looks like and there they are or a klingon or a klingon I'm sure that in the writer's room, like Ira and Robert and Renee and, um, and Ron, they're, they all probably had to sidestep a bunch of things. Like, you of know, course. if we get caught up in our own underwear, we're, not, we're never going to get this thing written. Right. <laughs> you know, because the, the issue with Worf and the Klingons, and I'll, I'm going to address that actually more in depth uh, later on at, at, at a different point or for a different point. But, yeah, I remember when I saw Worf there and when the waitress says all the other Klingons in here. Yeah. You know, we were all saying, how are they going to do this? How are they going to handle this? What's the resolution? Uh, And we didn't really get it. Um, Now, you did mention in your trivia that we did see David Gerald uh, Mm -hmm. a few times, but I do remember specifically seeing him at timestamp 1831 to 1833 when he ran past Dax and Cisco during the red alert. Yeah, that, that's a nice shot. And then there's another shot looking down a corridor. He's kneeling in the background and playing with a triple. Mm -hmm. So, okay. yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. And we all know shot. David Gerald being the, the writer, for the original writer yes. for uh, Trouble with Tribbles. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to go into cringeworthy Bashir territory here, <laughs> as we are wont to do. Yes. Okay, because in 1967, this type of humor could play for laughs. 
1996, maybe not so much, right? So there's that whole thing where Lieutenant Watley looks at Bashir and she says, your flaps open, very sexual innuendo-y line. Obviously, now then she references it's its tricorder leaking power. But then she turns around and kind of flirts with him and says, I'm new. I'm coming in for my physical tomorrow. I'd like to see you there. Lieutenant Watley, 1500. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, look, first things first. Not only is she gorgeous, she absolutely, I think more than anybody who they cast knew to look like TOS, she looks great for that period. She looks like she could have stepped off a set in 1967, more than anybody yeah. else there. Um, mm-hmm. So great choice in casting there. Uh, the The weird thing about it is that, like, Bashir is sold on this. He's ready to go that path when it should have been more of a Marty McFly-like, ooh, this is disgusting, I can't do this, I can't even think mm-hmm. about it, I need to leave. <laughs> you know? Uh, but then there's the chief saying, like, you know, she's only using you to get to me. I'm like, what are you guys, I in know, college? I know, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh gosh, yeah. Now, oh, it, it is funny, the bar fight scene, you can tell where they foleyed that fight scene uh, where it's all fully sound effects and they had to in order to cut out the original TOS music so there's like there's a lot of crashes and breaks and a lot of oof, oof, uh, you know layered in on top of that it, it's very effective but the more mm. I watched it the more <laughs> I was keyed into that yeah. yeah yeah I'm sure that there were they had to like tiptoe around a lot of licensing issues oh yeah when it came to using whatever well that and they also felt like the music tonally didn't fit um because that it look that fight scene is a long fight scene in the original episode and Mm. it's a little bit of uh you know jaunty playful music and i don't think they feel like tonally they could have gotten away with that in this episode yeah um i I do like uh, we got the little detail about dr mccoy going to uh university of mississippi that's cool and uh and again dax she just you know she got freaky with him i i can see why she misses this timeline i i I can't say i blame her look you you can go back in time to a a good time stay there yeah Yeah. very i mean there were really just like wholesome i guess memories for dax or for emory sure and curzon yeah to be sure. Um, it would have been funny to see like her say, or through Curzon say, um, I don't remember these guys looking like this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> right. Speaking of the Klingons. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, wh- when it comes to the, using this technology, I think my favorite scene is when Kirk sits on the Tribble and then in the background, you see Terry just snap turn right at him. Like the bomb was going to go off when he sat. And I was like, wow, that is Literally, like, the, and then the, the the reverse cutaway scene when he looks at her expression. I'm like, that is a really nice edit, really utilizing the technology to its fullest advantage. Absolutely, hundred uh, percent. The the timing on scenes like that was amazing. Oh, hey, uh, in universe, in show, did nobody detect that explosion outside of K seven, like on the Enterprise or on the Klingon ship? Did anybody just say like, oh, what was that? Oh, don't worry about it. Just something exploded out there. Yeah. yeah. Again, like one of those, just let's just get past that. We got more story to tell. And here's one thing, though, that 
as much of the footage that they used in Trouble with Tribbles, if you were a TOS fan, you would obviously spot when they used this specific scene when Cisco meets Captain Kirk, and that's from Mirror Mirror, um, and that's when they superimposed uh, Avery over oh, on top of Barbara Luna's Marlena Moreau at the very end, where she's like a lieutenant, uh, lieutenant, mm-hmm. and that's where he says Benjamin Cisco. But even though, I mean, he's still wearing the you know the green wraparound with this with the scrambled eggs yeah. tunic, so it still works. And um, so we have Tribbles at the end of this episode on Deep Space Nine, <laughs> completely infesting Deep Space Nine. Yes. So. Hey, do they have the new perfect weapon for this new Klingon aggression? You just solved it. You you just ended the 24th century Klingon war. They just need to beam every Tribble off the station onto the Klingon ships. Well, there'll be no Tribble at all. Top three TOS episodes that just wouldn't have worked here. Number three, Cisco, Dax, O'Brien, and Bashir beam down into the middle of Spock's brain. Bashir remembers Vettel Baral and says, hey, I got this. Polarity ensues. We'll get back to the tribbles in a moment, but first, a word from ExpressVPN. You ever watch The Office? I mean, I, I guess I, I can mean that specifically as well as rhetorically. <laughs> yeah. um, you're familiar with it. Our audience is familiar with it. Um, but if you have, you probably know that it is based on a UK series called The Office, uh, which is my favorite. Uh, but what if I told you there are nine other countries with their own versions of The Office that you've never seen. Well, uh, so you probably didn't know about them because they're not usually available in your country, but you can access content available around the world with no geo restrictions when you use ExpressVPN. Did you say nine other countries? Nine that show other the countries. So look, if you just wanted to uh, freshen up on maybe like your French or German or I, I don't know what languages, I, I haven't looked into all of them. But if you wanted to go that route, you could just learn an entirely different language through the office. I'd love to see a Japanese version of Dwight Schrute. <laughs> yes. <laughs> see, yes. So for all of our listeners out there, so ExpressVPN lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from nearly 100 different countries, giving you access to content that isn't available in your region. Hence me now going to look for Japanese Dwight Oh, I know you will. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It'd be Dwight Shuta. (laughs) (laughs) If you like watching shows or movies, ExpressVPN is a must-have. And for less than $7 a month, ExpressVPN lets you access thousands of new shows and movies on Netflix and Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, and tons of other streaming services. I mean, for this type of you know consumption, it's a no-brainer. It really is. And yeah. if you're an Office fan, obviously you want to see all 9, 10, 11 different versions of The Office or how many there are. Uh, all all coming soon easier. to Mission Log The Office. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Our extension <laughs> yes. shelf. And I was saying, John, it couldn't be easier to use. Just fire up the ExpressVPN app on your computer, your TV, select a location, and hit connect. Now, ExpressVPN is also incredibly fast. It doesn't slow down my connection. I check my app all the time, and it is so easy to stay connected with ExpressVPN. I can extreme, I can stream content in HD with extremely good quality with no issues. So to get the most out of your streaming services today... 
go to expressvpn.com slash missionlog. If you use our link, you'll get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free, right for free. Again, that is expressvpn.com slash missionlog. expressvpn.com slash missionlog to learn more. And we do thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring this week's show. All right. I, I kind of... Uh, when I was taking my notes, I just kept thinking, where do we even start? Because this is one of those episodes where everybody loves it. I, most everybody loves it. And we can find things that maybe we disagree with or we want to pick apart. Um, but it, it's not here to challenge us with, you know, deep philosophical, moral, ethical things. As far as I know, most of the members of our audience will not find themselves transported 105 years in the past and have to make an ethical decision about whether or not they interact and change the future. So really, that's mostly off the table for our discussion. I think in this segment, we're really just going to be talking about the feeling of the episode, uh, the places that it works for us, and then we'll we'll wrap it up next. So my first impression here is that this episode really captures something that is incredibly difficult to do, which is how do you take Star Trek, the original series, and make it feel both futuristic and retro at the same time? Because we are talking about productions that are separated by 30 years. We're talking about, in the timeline, eras that are separated by 100 years, which is how you can justify, you know, uh, everything in the 24th century looking so advanced and so different from the, you know, low production values of the original series. Um, And by extension, then, how do you justify the things that seem dated now? but were cool back then. You know, if you were an eight-year-old watching Star Trek in 1967, that looked cool. It looked like the future. But then an adult audience in 1996 or into the 21st century, maybe we have a little bit of our nostalgia lenses on. Maybe we see it as a little retro, but maybe still not, we're not totally buying it, you know? It's like going to Epcot Center before it got updated yeah because right, epcot you know right. it was like a, a time capsule but now you're way far ahead yeah, of where epcot's yeah. vision that, was. that's the difficulty of epcot or tomorrowland or anything is when you say this is the future not only is that grounded in the present but give it 10 years it'll always be out of date you know mm-hmm. that that's sort of the curse that comes with it with any kind of speculative fiction so you always have to look at it and especially star trek you have to look at it as what is the relevance today and and what was it saying the day that it came out you know and then look you're taking a 30 or in our case more than 50 year old show and making it feel relevant to an audience that maybe isn't already sold on it there were people who were young watching ds9 in its first run who probably hadn't watched TOS or hadn't watched a lot of TOS because it didn't click with them. So there are all these challenges to overcome, not just the mechanics of the story, but but how do we feel watching it? What is the feeling we want to give the audience when they're watching it? And all of this happens in a fun, and to me, this is the key phrase here, a non-ironic way. I'm sure I've ranted about it before, but I I have a hard time with entertainment that is delivered up 
solely because it is ironic or that that is the key thing they're playing on. It's just we're giving a big wink to the camera because that's all we've got, because the jokes and the content lying underneath it aren't really firing. So if we just wink big enough, you'll buy it anyway. For this episode to work, you have to buy the admiration and the awe that our DS9 characters have for this time and for these characters, and you do. Because they never just wink broadly at the camera and say, this is silly. No, they're, 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 they're sold. They're into it. And their, their love for it completely comes through the camera to us, the viewer. Those waters were tested when the next generation did Relics with Scotty. I believe that was season five. Yeah, I and with Relics, I, I think the the only thing that I felt about that show is that I, I felt like they really hadn't developed a strong enough plot underneath it, so it was just a little too relying on the nostalgia. It, it, it stopped mm-hmm. being fun at a certain point. Like we were happy to see Jimmy Dewan. We were happy to see Scotty. We were happy to see that bridge. But then it got a little maudlin, you know, I think. Well, I think, you know, you have that kind of storyline, and I think this is where, uh, where you know, you can't return home again. Right, right, right. right. And, and there were times where in Relics when Scotty said, we knew exactly what warp factor we were, uh, we were um cruising under by the vibration of the deck plates. And that kind of gets taken to that next level here when Bashir looks at the panel and he says, I don't even know where to start. Everything's so cross-wired and patched together. But that's how Scotty's enterprise was. That's how their technology was. So I I think that in in very many ways that the writing was really on point so that you weren't pandering to the audience, Mm -hmm. using nostalgia as bait for them to be invested in the episode. Yeah. yeah. And, and on that same level, I, I think the connection here between the writers and the audience is really clear. And it's a tricky thing. You know, if you if you fill a writer's room with only fans of something, I, I think you're creating a huge problem for yourself. If you fill a writer's room with people who know nothing about the fandom or maybe even have like a, a kind of a, contempt or an uneasiness for that fandom you're creating another set of problems for yourselves but this show works on that meta level where it's the writers in simpatico with the fans where like i I said before already the ds9 hero characters are the substitutes for us they are the audience and they get to be in awe of star trek for a little while they get to play in this world just like we would want to and for me, no one does that better in this episode than Terry Farrell does. Yes, 100%. 100%. And I think it's because they really understood where they could go with the Dax symbiote and how many generations that Dax symbiote was involved throughout the course of its Starfleet career. Mm. So you have Emery with McCoy. You have Curzon with Koloth. Then you have uh, you have all of these experiences wrapped up in the 23rd century where Emery or Curzon would have used tricorders or communicators or have been on these ships. She knows her way around because she's been there. We know our way around. I would say, uh, to be fair, um, a segment of the audience that loves to this day, still loves TOS, that watched this episode in 96 Mm -hmm. 
we knew our way around that era. Right. So when we see those, you know, those totems, those icons, like the communicator, like uh, the, whatever that thing was that the Henson was going to use to fix the I panel. love that. I love that giant prop. Right? That, yeah. Oh. Yeah. You know, we know Scotty used that like yeah. once, you know, so, but, or just him mentioning Scotty mm-hmm. or, or just seeing the bar fight again in, yeah. in, uh, on station K7, all the beats were there for us to, 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 to reminisce with, but in a very special and, and a kind of a reformat kind of way where we're seeing a new story, but we're seeing kind of like the, um, you know that there, there are those stories where you you overhear conversations and you get to see that story from five or six different angles. Yeah. This is that story, right? Right. It, it is that because you know because you know like when when uh, when Dax is throwing tribbles out of the you know out of the room and those are the same tribbles that are falling on Kirk. You know there there are 360 degrees to that experience, and now you're getting to see right. Them. And that's the the yeah. strength of the writing here is that they found the details without just, well, I guess in Kirk's case, they literally hit him on the head with it. But for us, the (laughs) audience, they didn't necessarily hit us over the head with it. They just made it all organically blend into that world. It's really, you know, one of my favorite film franchises of all time is Back to the Future. And that movie works so well, that series works so well, because the fantasy fulfillment of seeing the past and seeing that past through different eyes you know, and and seeing those people as real people, like seeing your parents as real people because they were young once too, not just as your parents, you know. Um, You're my ma. Right. You're my ma. <laughs> my name is Lorraine. Right. So that, that yeah. this works on that level as well, where there, there is the, the there is the task of the story, which is we have to correct this moment in history because if we don't, we are doomed too. But there's also the fun of it as well. So it's really firing on all of those. And, and, you know, I will say that there's anything sort of remotely serious about this or contemplative about this. I, I do always appreciate and enjoy a commentary about how we don't know our own history as well as we think we do. That goes for everybody. I can certainly understand Dax's desire to stay in a place that she's comfortable. She's already been through it. She's already lived through that time as uh, as another, you know, trill host pairing. But through the Dax symbiote, she knows that time. We have a bad tendency as humans to romanticize the past, whether it was 30 or 50 or 100 years ago. And latch onto the things that we like about those times, but not really put it into the whole context of, oh, well, what was also horrific and terrible about those times. But this is one of those cases where, you know, it it works out. They get to meet their heroes in a way that doesn't diminish those heroes, because you can do that on TV when it's a fantasy, <laughs> when, it's, mm-hmm. when it's science fiction, when those people really are heroic. So there's nothing necessarily to be learned there, but it's great to see each character kind of have their own experience with that time. That it, it, it's not, it, you know, for Dax, it's one thing. For the others, it's another thing. Like, this is a little weird. I feel a little out of place. I kind of can't wait to get back home, <laughs> you know? They, they, they were able to use the voices of those characters to get so much of that across. And 
they use the right characters to to kind of strip down what these characters would be, say, um, the, the, the serious like uh, discomfort that they would have from being so advanced in their era. You know, you have a doctor, you know, who's he's, you know, he's the top of his field, head of a Starfleet or not a Starfleet, but, you know, head of a space station. You have one of the best engineers in Starfleet. One, the guy can't uh, he can't repair 23rd century technology right. or even try right. to. And then Dr. Bashir, who can't help but fumble over his own tricorder at the sight of a pretty girl. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, Say, some, you know, you're, something's you're, universal. OK. <laughs> yeah. But here's like it's like you're, you're finding the exploits in these characters that make those comedic moments as opposed to forcing those comedic moments, except for one th- that one bit yeah. where, you know, the, the, the predestination paradox of Bashir being his own grandfather. And then he's like steaming at that O'Brien saying, I may not even be born. I can't uh, wait to see your face when that happens. Yeah. I'm like, th- I, I was waiting for that music cue that. Dear, 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 dear. <laughs> Whoa, that was you good. Know? That was very good. Yeah. I hope, I hope that one gets picked up for my, the, the musical yes, knowledge. Yeah. I did that in real you time, did. I think you too. Uh, but you know, you're, you're waiting for, uh, some kind of payoff from that line, and it just falls really flat. Yeah. But it may have not fallen so flat in 1967. You yeah. know, so yeah. it, it was it was a weird. Um, I, I guess it was it was a weird extrapolation of trying to fit that humor into the, a 1996 sensibility. Yeah. Um, I mean, the same thing with the sexual innuendo joke. But the the, the bigger thing that kind of really uh, kind of made an impression on me was who at Starfleet is teaching Klingon history. Oh, please. Yes, exactly. Right? Okay. So let's get kind of like to the nitty gritty <laughs> of the matter okay. here. I wish I could jump our own timeline because we know that in some future series mm-hmm. that they're going to tackle some of these answers. But how do you not know what Klingons from the 23rd century would look like if they are recorded in history books in being some of the greatest battles of the Federation, especially, oh, I don't know what happened on Organia. Yeah. yeah. That created one of the greatest peace treaties of all time between the Federations and the Klingons, creating the detente that pretty much kept both of these empires at war, from war. You know what the Enterprise is. You know who Kirk is, unless you're O'Brien mistaking him, which was funny. That that was a good bit. That was funny. Um, yeah. You know what this time looks like. How could you not know what Klingons also look like? And and honestly, look, again, I appreciate the joke. I appreciate giving Worf a moment. I appreciate acknowledging it. There was another way to do that, though. And honestly, it might have been something as simple as somebody else at that table saying, you know, wait, I've seen these Klingons before. What's the deal? I don't see them anymore. Or, what? you know, you could acknowledge that those were the Klingons that you saw in history class. You could acknowledge that that Worf looks different and every other Klingon that you've experienced in your lifetime looks different. That would have been okay. But... For all of them to play dumb is just, it's a bit much to swallow. Yeah. And you want to talk about probably the biggest can of gach ever opened uh, uh, yeah. in Star Trek. Yeah. And I'm, I will, I have, I have some pretty, um, pretty serious thoughts about that actually towards the end. Here. All right. <laughs>
Top 3 TOS episodes that just wouldn't have worked here. Number 2. Cisco, Dax, O'Brien, and Bashir beam down into the magics of Megas 2 and suddenly they're all cartoons. Dax orders the deviled eggs. Hilarity ensues. Well, what an episode this has been so far. We've covered tribbles, we've covered storage compartments, and storage compartments. But when we get down to it, John... The Trouble with Tribbles and now Trials and Tribulations, these two episodes have come together in such a way that not only remind us of how great Star Trek used to be, but how great Star Trek is when you combine things in a very respectful and very balanced way. But do we see that in the same way, eye to eye at the end, as we reflect on this episode in our morals, meanings, and messages. Well, that is the million quatlu question now, isn't it? I try very hard to be uh, honest and critical. And and even in the best episodes, I want to know if there are things that don't work. In the worst episodes, I want to know if there are things that do work, that are worth uh, highlighting and celebrating. And um, this is one of those episodes that before watching it, I even said to myself, this one's important, and this one is much beloved. Am I going to come away from this underwhelmed or with points that I can't get past in an otherwise great episode? And I have to say, at the end of the day, I can't help but love this thing. I cannot help but love this episode. And and it's strange because the trouble with Tribbles never makes it to my list of favorite TOS episodes. That doesn't mean that I don't like it, but when I think about my all-time favorite, like, say, top 10, top 15, or whatever, it's really not there. But that episode is the perfect launching point for this kind of story. So to me, it sort of serves its purpose there. Um, I think it's important here to say that you only really get to do this once. I don't like for Star Trek to be too self-referential because I think you fall into a trap then of making um, you make the characters who we know and love for their abilities you start to make them more than human you start to make them mythical and yes we can all say that Kirk was a great captain just like today we might say uh, oh you know uh, Patton was a great general or uh, Admiral Nelson was a great uh, Navy tactician. You know, yes, we, we can do it, but we don't say that, oh, those people are the single most important figures around whom all other history revolves. And Star Trek can sometimes fall into that trap where it says like, Okay, because Kirk and Spock started the series or started the franchise with their series, now everything always has to refer back to them. I think it's a dangerous place for Star Trek to go. Because to me, it makes that whole universe smaller. And when you do that, I think you can also very easily slip into parody. And you you Mm -hmm. stop being creative and honest about the stories that you want to tell. But all that said, they avoid that here. And what they did is they created something fun. Then they created something that was honest and, again, non-ironic in the way they handled it. And that was really the key here. Because in another writer's hands or another group of writer's hands, it could have turned into like a smirking, oh, let's make fun of how silly things looked in the 60s. But no, here they're, they're in awe of it. 
They love it. And so do we. As an episode, technically, it's damn near flawless. This was made 30 years after TOS and more than 20 years ago from our perspective today. And a lot has changed since then, like improvements in CG effects, even the release of the HD version of the original series. But what they nailed here in terms of the lighting and the film grain, uh, you just completely buy that you're there. And that is a huge thanks again, partly to Jonathan West. Uh, It's his skill that he brought to the table and vintage lenses. I mean, they threw every technical trick they could here to absolutely make it work. If there's any technical weak link at all, it's the audio. And I was very conscious of that. Mics on a set in the 1960s were very different from modern audio recording for a production today. The the sound, the centeredness, the resonance of voices, the way that actors would play a scene. They're in big studio settings with one guy with a boom mic and they are projecting to that mic and all that room noise is getting picked up too. And then the audio engineer at the other end is trying to condense that down so you get a different sound. Audio today, primarily all ADR. So even if you have your actors mic'd up uh, on lavaliers and you've got a boom mic in there, probably 90% of what you're hearing is ADR. So it's a very intimate, close studio setting talking right into a mic. And that's why dialogue sounds a lot more intimate today than it did back then. So that that is a mismatch in this production. You can't quite match it. And they don't really try to match it here. But But that said... The inclusion of the new sound effects layered on top, like in the fight scene, very clever. And everything else to me just adds up to be a blast. If I had to think long and hard about negative points of this episode, well, I would just hand them over to you and see what you have to say and see if I have a comeback for any of it. (laughs) So take it away, Norman. You know, from a production level standpoint, though, I, I agree with you. Like, there's technically nothing wrong with this episode. And as a matter of fact, they actually push the boundaries of technology to be able to seamlessly integrate 1996 production level quality with 1967 production level quality. And I think that they did that tremendously well. Now, yes, they had some audio issues because you can't sync up the quality of audio. They had some color timing issues. And that's just because the quality of the film, you can only res something up so much. You can only oversaturate something so much to the point where it becomes uh, forced to the viewer, especially mm-hmm. people that have been studying this this uh, this episode and the, the era of the 23rd century for Star Trek, the original series, right. for decades, for decades. And this kind of brings me to my point. <clears throat> One of the things that I believe that this episode does more than any other episode of Star Trek that I've seen is that this is the episode that really introduces the word canon into the way it is used in fandom today. Mm. Now, let me explain. And I know that this is probably going to not sit well with some people, but I do believe that when all is said and done, when you take a look at the original series, it never borrowed from itself because it was the first So it never really had points of contention where fans would say, this does not match up with this. Even in the next generation, for the most part, 
fans did not compare or contrast the two because everyone believes that everything that you saw in the 24th century has moved on past this original series. But now that you have this episode, now that you have the reverence that this episode has paid to the original series, you have now, in fact, or I should say the producers and the creators of this episode have now, in fact, created the definitive visual canonical guide for Star Trek as it can be argued. What I mean by that is that the Enterprise now looks how it should look in perpetuity in canon, regardless of whether you see that in Discovery or regardless if you see that in other incarnations of Star Trek, now because of this episode, it can only be alloc- uh, uh, allocated to look a certain way. Oh, man. Because, yeah. because it has established, this episode has established it as being canon because the Deep Space Nine crew went back in time and established this as fact. Right. The way things looked. Dax, in particular, my hero, my heroine <laughs> of the story of the of being the nostalgia ambassador, also helps cement that fact. I was there. I remembered these things. This is how things looked. Because now she is strap, uh, straddling both timelines. Yeah. Right? The present in Deep Space Nine and the past. So in this episode, because it's a time travel episode, and because production has paid such strict reverence and adherence and respect to accurately recreating the trouble with Tribbles, for the canonistas out there, now 23rd century aesthetic has become, in fact, canon law. Federation ships look the way they should, regardless of real-world technology, not how they should look. And not they're just ships, but production aesthetics, uniforms, weapons, visual effects, alien makeup. Right. Which, again, begins to complicate and convolute things like, and let's talk about the 600-pound Klingon in the room, <laughs> Klingons. Yes. Or Klingons. Right? Yeah. Or, Kling- yeah. or Klingons. Yeah, yeah. Right? So when I first watched this in 1996, and a wharf scene in the bar is what I remember the most. It made the most impact on me because... As a TOS fan, I, I knew Klingons of a certain look. In the movies, I knew Klingons of a certain look. And I could accept that. Mm-hmm. I thought we just moved forward from that. Because the Klingons are the most extreme and the most iconic alien probably in Star Trek. Probably next to Vulcans. Or probably more so than Vulcans. But the way that they sidestepped Worf in this episode, considering that they built up this entire Klingon momentum from way of the warrior to now. And they just say, we don't talk about it. Yeah. Why even bother going there? Why even bother inserting Worf into that scene where he really didn't have to be there? I felt that the writers were just putting all of us into that situation where, Hey, you know what? I can't wait for the fans to really get into this. What has done in my opinion, has created a schism in the fan base where now people are like, okay, this is the gate and some of us will choose to keep it. Yeah. Hence, gatekeeping. Now, of course, this episode is wonderfully nostalgic. It's a lot of fun to watch. It's a milestone in Star Trek history. We all understand and respect and acknowledge that. But when all of that starts to fade away, when the bloom falls off the rose, what Star Trek 
fandom after this episode, in my opinion, has been left with is an episode that can now be used in a variety of different ways to further the agenda of canonistas. And I think this is where I have felt was kind of like the, the beginning of where fans were like, no, 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 this is how it's supposed to look, or that's how it's supposed to look, because this episode says so, and more so than any other episode that I've watched so far. You know what? I, I thought so I had not read your notes, and I thought for some reason I was going to be in vehement disagreement with you, <laughs> but, um, but I'm definitely not, because I, I think canon is an albatross around the neck of Star Trek in general. And you and I were talking off air last week, so I'll share it on air this week to say, you know, to me, I, as a kid going to see Star Trek, the motion picture, I did not care that the Klingons had changed. I thought, this is cool. The Klingons have changed. Those Klingons look scarier. I want to know more about them. That was about it. But then it became a thing. And any time there was any minor change to a Klingon or another makeup on another character, it became a thing. And you're pointing to something, you know, I I said it in my wrap-up that this is the kind of episode you only get to do once. And I would almost amend that and say this is the kind of episode you only get to do once and do it last. Because if you do it last, then you're just doing the love letter to Star Trek. Here's what was. Here's how far we've come. Here's where we are. And we're done. But I don't need every little hole to be filled here. I don't need every I to be dotted. I don't need every T to be crossed to enjoy a good story. And when Star Trek becomes about that, when it just becomes about filling all these little gaps that are of a concern to somebody somewhere, it stops being about the story. And it just starts being about how clever can we be to drop in uh, all these bridges to supposed, you know, gaps in canon. Um, So I think canon is partly uh, uh, an incorrect and oftentimes a dangerous word to use when you were just talking about a piece of popular fiction that is meant to inspire and entertain. But yeah, that's I think that every time Star Trek reimagines anything, there's so much pushback from fandom. This is Star Trek. This isn't Star Trek. If you like this Star Trek, you're wrong. If you like this Star Trek, you're right. And a lot of that comes, not not specifically from this episode, but, but the kind of thinking then that this episode does. It just happens to be that this episode is the one that said, yes, TOS looks like TOS because that's the way it looks to these characters who occupy the biggest chunk of Star Trek real estate, which is the 24th century. And it makes it that much harder than when you have a redesigned or reimagined Enterprise or a redesigned or reimagined TOS style uniform. Mm. I think everybody's tolerance on those things varies to some degree or another. I might like to see a little more than somebody else. Somebody else might say, oh, no, no, I want a total redesign of everything that's the only way i can get into it 
as if I'm not thinking about this show that came out 50 years ago. So um, this episode presents an interesting problem in that respect. It's not that it's a problem in the storytelling. It's not that it's a problem Mm -hmm. in their love of Star Trek. But as you so eloquently put, Norman, it's this problem then that becomes how does fandom relate to Star Trek's ability to go forward? Mm-hmm. And you've said it before, John, you said that once art has been produced and released, it's out there for the public to consume as it will. And I think that that's where an episode like this is manipulated in a way where people can use it as their kind of like as their ace in the hole of, well, no, this is how it is supposed to look. Take, for example, any other version of Star Trek that we've seen. I've always believed that every single time that we see a new iteration of Star Trek, I'm going to take that and overlay that on top of my head canon, quote unquote, (laughs) and that's what it's supposed to look like. But because of certain elements in this episode, and you're right, these characters have occupied the largest amount of Star Trek temporal real estate for the how many years of it was on consecutively? 18 years? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So that's that has created such um, an architecture of what is, what was, and what isn't. And I think that that is where a lot of fans really dig their heels in and say, oh, no, 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 no. You know, if, if Herman Zimmerman or if Michael Kuda or if Doug Drexler or if Denise, if any of these production designers or artists did not create it and it doesn't look a specific way, then it doesn't belong in the vernacular of the fandom. And I think it started from here. At least it yeah. did for me. So I, this might be a conversation we have to pick up on a supplemental because I, I think the question becomes, what do we do with that? How, how do we then contextualize it and maybe take a step back so we can move forward and say other Star Trek can also be Star Trek? Well, I think that you just have fans kind of come to the realization the way that Kirk came to the realization in Star Trek Six. You know, it's like, well, how can history get past people like me? <laughs> how can Star Trek history get past some of the fans? I don't know if it yeah. can. I don't know if it should. That's how fandom works. Yeah. You know, as long as those fans don't ruin the fandom of other people, but that happens also from time to time. Well, did we pick up any uh, morals, meanings, or messages here from this very interesting and now maybe slightly problematic episode? Well, I don't think it's problematic for the for the reasons why we were discussing. Yeah. Like I said, you know, from everything from narrative to writing to technicality to production to quality, all it's that kind of stuff perfection. is all on. Yeah, yeah it's above board. Yeah. It's above yeah. board. But, you know, from, from my standpoint, from, from my take on this, this episode was designed what it's supposed to do um, narratively and literally because the attention to detail in every element of production was impeccable, as we've discussed. It hit all the marks. And but but again, you know, the way that fandom has escalated over the course of what 50 plus years i i still think that this episode can be used for the purposes of of gatekeepers Mm. to the point where they use an episode like this and episodes that maybe come in the future i can't speak to that yet where the community takes to this extreme protectionism of the franchise and especially of tos so i hope it's it's my intent by saying all this to at least acknowledge that the message here should be that 
take this episode for what it is. It's a celebration of two series coming together to honor the lore and legacy of Star Trek. Yeah, and, and I think I kind of land in a similar place. I mean, the, this episode, because it fell where it did on the 30th anniversary, it, it says to the audience, from producer to fan, we're with you. Star Trek is this slice of our shared history. And look, it can be preachy, but it can be fun. It can be slick and sophisticated by design, or it can be bare bones. It has the ability to poke fun at itself and still be relevant and entertaining. And they accomplish all of that here in spades. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. Enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com, where you'll find Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam. Shabam! And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, let he who is without sin... Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. And now, top three TOS episodes that just wouldn't have worked here. Number one, Cisco, Dax, O'Brien, and Bashir beam down into and the children shall lead. O'Brien gets sued by a lawyer in a shower curtain. Hilarity ensues. Transmission Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks, then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.